Thank you, thank you. you. may be seated. We are, uh, again, honored to be back here at West Coast. Thank the Lord for what God is doing in your hearts and lives. And I want to say thank you to the students who are, perhaps are here, some of you are here anyway, who came here in uh, this last February and March uh, to the uh, leadership conference in Asia. How many folks are here that were a part of that? Would you stand for just a moment? Would you stand? All right. I just want to say publicly thank you for coming. I, I know it was a sacrifice. But your presence there made a huge difference, and of, and of course, I think the difference also was made in your life by coming. And so again, I just want to say publicly thank you so much, and I hope that you'll uh, make it again if you're still here in 2025, all right? God bless you. you may be seated. And uh, we sure had a good time at the leadership conference. You know, I have, a, I have an unusual name, the name Folger. You know that's an unusual name, and uh, you don't see it in any place, but... Uh, uh, we uh, honestly, uh, since I was a, a teenager, I've always been teased a little bit about the name Folger. It's just one of those situations that, you know, as a high school, they, instead of calling me Kevin Folger, they say, hey, there's Kevin Maxwell House. There's, uh, there's, there's uh, you know, there's Mrs. Olson. She used to be the advertising spokesman for, for Folgers. And so, you know, you always got ribbed about that. And so that hasn't uh, diminished as I've gotten older. Uh, as folks meet me, you know, a lot of times I'll just, they'll say something about the name. I'll check into a hotel and I'll say, I'm, uh, is it, uh, my name is Kevin Folger. I'm here to check in. Oh, do you own the company? I said, I wish. I wish I owned the company. So I have that, that reputation. So my wife and I, we've been traveling, as you know, for the last four years. And we've had the opportunity, of course, to be in a lot of places. And several years ago, probably about four, five years ago, we were in Wisconsin. We have any Wisconsin students here today? All right, there's a few, I think. But uh, we, had, we were in Wisconsin. It was February. And, you know, being in Wisconsin in February is not a good time because of just all the snow and the cold. Anyway, uh, we did a couple's retreat, and then I was staying over to preach at the church on Sunday, and I walked into the auditorium on, uh, on Sunday morning, my wife and I. We got there early, and, and you would know this to be the case if you're, you know, obviously from your churches, but uh, when I was a, a teenager, you know, I, I, I worked the bus route, so I got to church early, but most of the time, if I, you know, you weren't a worker or laborer, you, you didn't get to church early, so we were there at the church early, and when I got there, there was a whole gang of teenagers standing towards the back of the building. I say, gang, there's probably maybe 10. And they would just, you know, they seemed to be enjoying themselves. And I looked back at them, and every time they looked at me, they started laughing. Well, you know, that makes you a little uncomfortable. You know, when people start laughing at you, when they look at you, it's like, okay, uh, what's wrong? Did I, you know, is uh, something out of sorts or whatever? But that just continued for a while. And next time I looked back there, and they're still continuing to giggle, I looked up, and there was the pastor right in the middle of that mess. And he was also laughing as they were doing that. And he said, all right, Brother Folger, you got to come over here. And when I walked over, one of the teenagers in the, the church uh, had the ability, like many of you do, know how to do this technology thing really, really well. And that teenager had made a meme. And that meme was me. And I want them to throw that up on the screen because the best part of waking up is Folger's in your cup, all right? And so... When you think about uh, your coffee in the morning, I want you to pray for us and the work that God has given us to do. Would you please do that? We'd appreciate it. You can take that down now, please. <laughs> appreciate it. So God is good, and we're grateful for God's uh, blessing and his journey in our life. My wife and I, almost, well, nearly 50 years ago, we were college students, and we started out on this journey of life, and uh, we're grateful for all God's done in our life, and we're thankful for the, the journey that, that God has taken us on. And... Uh, you know, really, the, the, the pathway to where we are today is really a, a, a pathway that obviously God orchestrates. We heard uh, from Brother Tate today about God's sovereignty in our life. 
And uh, I, I honestly surrendered to be a missionary when I was a junior in high school. I, I said, Lord, if that's what you want, it was a missions conference at our church, and God was really stirring in my heart. And so I just went to the altar and said, God, if you want me to be a missionary, that's what I'll do. And so I just kind of set my sails for being a missionary. So I went to Bible college and trained in a missions emphasis type of program. And we graduated, came back on the staff thinking, you know, we're going to be here. My wife and I are going to be here for a, a couple of years, do an internship, and then we'll, we'll uh, make our way to the mission field. And I always had a burden for Southeast Asia. It was, I don't know why it was. I was just, when I was in college, God just kind of burdened my heart. And as I sat in those missions classes, they talked to us about, well, do you know where God's leading you and how is he directing you and those type of things. And I just, you know, I just, for a reason, I just felt like, well, my heart is towards Asia. So I came back and I was thinking, you know, primarily think about maybe the Philippines or someplace like that. And so we served on the staff there for a little while. And I, I was on staff about a year and my pastor said, hey, I'd like you to take a, a mission survey trip and just kind of see, what, let's kind of figure this thing out. So the church made a provision. I'd never been on, a, on an international flight. Actually, I'd never been on a commercial airline up to that point. And so uh, I made my way there to the Hopkins Airport in Cleveland and got on an airplane, made, I think flew to Chicago. From Chicago, flew on to Tokyo, Japan landed in Tokyo. The Narita Airport is brand new back in those days and landed there. It was 1979 and uh, spent the night there, took a, and then got on a train the next morning, went in town, just kind of looked around a little bit and I was, thought it was quite interesting. Went on to Hong Kong and spent two nights there. But my final destination really was Singapore. I was really interested at that point in Singapore. Uh, you know, you think about Singapore, it's an amazing little city nation, so to speak. And uh, it's really tightly governed, and uh, they, uh, there's an openness in some respects to the gospel, but heavily influenced by Buddhism. And, of course, I spent about three weeks there. I was working with a national pastor and who started there, and he was going to be my sponsorship in. And so I, as I traveled around that city and could see the great needs, saw the people, saw the fact that, hey, there's a lot of young people here who could speak English, and at that point I'm a young guy who... You know, and it's just kind of a developing, really a, a sharp place to live and all kinds of things going on. I thought, well, maybe this is it. And, you know, I, I left there and I had no peace. I thought, man, God, I, I, I'm open to this. Is this what you have? And I came back and I, I just struggled. I struggled the longest time trying to figure this out. I said, God, why? I, I can see the need, so, you know, but, but why don't I have peace? So one night I just got along with the Lord and I, you know, just said, I got to figure this out. And uh, I got on my face before God and I spent some time. I I don't know how long I prayed. I can't tell you how long I prayed. But in that season of prayer, God spoke to my heart and said, Kevin, just follow my lead. I'm right now. You're not going to the mission field. Well, that was somewhat shocking to me because I'm a mission intern serving on a staff thinking, okay, tomorrow I got to go in and tell my pastor Hey, I'm, I'm not going to the mission field, so that means I'm out of a job. How's that going to work, right? I've got a wife and a, a, uh, one son. I've got another one that's just about bet, ready to be delivered. How's that going to work? So I, uh, I went in the next morning, sat down with my pastor, said, I really need to talk to you, and sat in his office, and I said, hey, look, last night I said, I just, I've been struggling for the longest time trying to figure out what God's got for my life. And uh, I said, I just came to the conclusion God doesn't want us on the, on the mission field. And he looked at me and said, good. He said, I didn't think you belonged there anyway, but I couldn't tell you that. You had to figure that out. You know, and, and, and he said, I, I just want you to stay. Just stay and just we'll see how God leads. And I, I was there about five years, and he started talking to me at that point about mentoring me and preparing me to be his successor, if the, that's what the Lord wanted. 
And, I, and honestly, when I was a kid growing up in that church, I would never have envisioned me ever being the pastor of that church. I never would have thought I'm the guy who's going to walk into there and be the, fo the follower of a guy by the name of Roy Thompson, who God used so mightily to build a uh, really a tremendous church in Cleveland. But you know, God has a plan and he's got a process to that plan. We all want a product, don't we? Everybody wants a product. But you can't get the product without the process. And sometimes we want to shortcut that, that process. And so, you know, I, I, I stepped into that pastorate in 1995, and for 24 years, God blessed the ministry, and we were very, very grateful for all God is, was doing. And one of the things I think you do in, in a ministry is you, you really, as a, a pastor, you're kind of an, I, I think about this often, that really every pastor is just an interim guy. He's only going to be there so long. And then somebody's going to take that, that position behind you. And part of what you need to do as a pastor, if some of you call the pastor of a church, you know, you, you need to think about, hey, somebody's going to come behind me. And at some point, I need to start training somebody to be my successor. I think the most dangerous point in any church is when a church is without a pastor for any length of time. It's dangerous, very dangerous, because the devil can get into that. And so what, what a sweet way to, to do it if you can just kind of segue from one pastor. We, our church in 65 years, just celebrated 65th anniversary, has never been a Sunday without a pastor. God has just allowed the next pastor to always be in place to take the church and continue it on. So we transitioned out of the pastor here in 2019, but immediately it went into this work. Isn't it interesting now here at the, I can say this, this fourth quarter of my life, Dr. Sisk, this fourth quarter of my life, God says, okay, now you can go do the mission thing. But you see, there's a process of getting there. And obviously God had a plan for me to go pastor for a while and do what I was doing. Now he's going to let me work on this mission side. So I'm so grateful for God's blessing in my life. And I want to encourage you because sometimes, you know, we think we have to have it all figured out. We leave here, hey, I got to know everything about my life. You don't need to know everything about your life. You just need to know you're where God wants you to be today. And just follow God's direction every day of your life and you'll be okay, all right? Don't get too far out there. You can, nothing wrong with having dreams, nothing wrong with having plans. Just understand that God can interrupt those dreams and plans because he's got something else maybe for you. Take your copy of God's word. Let's go to the book of Luke chapter five this morning. Luke chapter five. And if you can stand, let's go ahead and stand for the reading of God's word. Luke chapter five, beginning in verse number one. And it came to pass that as the people pressed upon him to hear the word of God, he stood by the lake of Gennesaret. And of course, you know the reference there and those pronouns he is reference to Jesus, our Savior. And saw two ships standing by the lake, but the fishermen were gone out of them and were, fish, were washing their nets. And he entered into one of the ships, which was Simon's, and he prayed him that he would thrust out a little from the land. And he sat down and taught the people out of the ship. Now when he left speaking, he said unto Simon, Launch out in the deep and let down your nets for the draft. Simon Peter answering said unto him, Master, we have toiled all night and we have taken nothing. Nevertheless, at thy word I will let down the net. And when he thus done, he enclosed a great multitude of fishes and their net break. And they beckoned unto their partners, which were in the other ship, that they should come and help them. And they came and filled both ships, so they began to sink. When Simon Peter saw it, he fell down at Jesus' knees, saying, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. 
For he was astonished in all that were with him at the draft of the fishes, which they had taken. And so was also James and John, the sons of Zebedee, which were partners with Simon. And Jesus said unto Simon, Fear not, from henceforth thou shalt catch men. And when they had brought their ships to the land, they forsook all and followed him. Heavenly Father, we're grateful this morning to be here at the chapel and once again to be on the property of Lancaster Baptist Church and West Coast Baptist College. And Lord, you know, as we've already heard in the message this morning, that there's a great need in our world. And these young people, Lord, who are standing before me, are young people, Lord, that you have called and they are training, Lord, for the ministry. And this morning, Lord, in this chapel, we've heard testimonies of folks who, and preaching from folks who have already been educated here and are out now doing the work, and we're grateful for that. There is a great need because the harvest truly is plenteous, but the labors are few. Lord, I pray this morning that you would do a great work in our hearts and in our lives. Thank you for this conference this week and this emphasis. I pray that you'd help these young people, Lord, to hear from you. And Lord, help them to be obedient, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. you. may be seated. The year was 1792, and William Carey was just 30 years of age. He'd recently been ordained and had been asked to speak to a group of pastors that were meeting at what was called the Friar Lane Baptist Chapel. It was a, a time in which William Carey had really had, had a burden when really at that point missions was somewhat not emphasized in the British Isles and reaching out. And so he, he was really burdened that day as he stood before this congregation of, of other preachers. And it was during that message that William Carey, for the very first time, used the statement that he really came known for in his life. And that statement is simply this, expect great things from God and attempt great things for God. That, uh, that statement really was just something that really, William Carey really believed in, that, hey, I can expect great things from God, but I have to attempt great things for God. And so he not just spoke about those things, but he lived them. So in November of 1792, uh, or I'm sorry, in April of 1793, William Carey and his wife and three sons sailed from London to Calcutta, India. They got there in November. Think about that. They left in April and arrived in November. And as they began their work there, laboring among the Indian people, it was not without its cost. They went a seven-year span without one convert. Can you imagine how difficult that would be? You preach and you try to win people to Christ and there's no results. And so for seven long years, they labored. However, in the year 1800, Carey established a mission base from which he would print and preach and educate the Indian people. God blessed Mr. Carey's efforts in spreading the gospel across South India. By the time of his death, think about this, in 1834, he had translated the scriptures into dozens of languages and dialects, and he had established a college and seminary among the Indian nationals. William Carey goes down in history as the father of what we call modern missions. Really was the, you got a man that God used to, to, to inspire the likes of Adonai and Judson and and uh, David Livingston and others. And so he, he becomes the father of modern missions. But, but, but you know, we, we look at a man like that and we, we would think, man, how awesome is it to be, uh, be, be somebody like William Carey? But you understand there was a price that was paid in, in order for him to accomplish those things. 
So you're sitting here today, and uh, probably there'll be some folks here who will never uh, cross an ocean to be a missionary. Uh, maybe you'll never be a church planner like Brother Yap, but you'll go serve on a staff someplace. And, and sometimes as we think about our life, you know, we think, well, I'll never do what, what, some great things for God. But I, I want you to think with me this morning that what William Carey said is something that every one of us should inspire to be. You should expect great things from God, and you should attempt great things for our God. It doesn't necessarily mean that you're going to be an evangelist, a flaming evangelist, or, or, or you're going to be married to a pastor who's, who's going to be world-renowned or whatever the case may be. But I'm here to tell you that God can take your life and he wants to do something special in your life. I see in this text that God is obviously working in the life of a man by the name of Peter. In our text, we, he's dealing with Peter and uh, what happens that day in Peter's boat. As we talked about this process, there's a product that's coming. And there's got to be a process and there's a process that God is doing in the life of Peter in this moment, in this text. He's working in his life. The narrative, as we begin reading here, as we've read this morning in, in chapter 5, it gives us the op- in the opening few verses, Jesus, think about this, is at the kind of the beginning of his ministry. I shared yesterday in the class that I taught here for Brother Rasmussen in the auditorium class here yesterday that we think about our, our life, and I'm, I'm, I'm now in my 45th, working in my 46th year of ministry, full-time ministry. Jesus had a three-year window, three and a half years to accomplish everything. Think about that. Everything that God had given him to do when he started his ministry at age 30, by the time he's 33 and a half, he's finish that work. The ultimate, of course, dying on the cross, conquering sin for us and conquering the grave. But part of that, of course, is his ministry is to start a church and to train those who will take that ministry after he's gone. And so we, we see that here. He's in the opening part of his ministry and he's pre- trying, getting ready to prepare these folks. And, and so I want you to notice in the text, it's morning. The indication is from what Peter says, hey, man, we've toiled all night. I get this picture, and some of you perhaps have had the opportunity, like I have had, to to travel the Holy Land. And and I I believe this this scenario probably played out not far from the the town of Capernaum. That was the home of Peter, James, and John. And so the the lake of uh, the Sea of Galilee kind of butts up against that Capernaum. And so probably not far from there. So early in the morning, the Bible says there's a crowd of people. They're, They're coming with Jesus. They're following him. So I, I'm, I'm seeing in my mind's eye, I'm seeing that lake, and perhaps it's still that morning. Uh, maybe the, the mist is maybe rising off of it. And, and in this crowd of people are thronging Jesus. And here are Peter, James, and John. They've got their, their boats there. They've, they're, they're, they've been a night of fishing. Not much has happened. Not much has been accomplished. They're just sitting there washing their nets, trying to, you know, just put them away, get ready for the next day, uh, may, tonight maybe to go back and, and do it again. And without warning, Jesus walks into Peter's boat and says, hey, Peter, I need to use your boat this morning. Push out a little from the land. He sets down and teaches the people. And when he gets done teaching, he says to Peter, Peter, now I want you to get out into the deep. And then I want you to let down your nets. And from what we see in this text, Peter didn't want to do that. Because he didn't think Jesus knew what he was doing. And but the Bible, Bible tells us, but he obeyed, he let down his net, and when he did, he enclosed a great multitude of t- fishes. And God changed his life that day. 
And I think there are four truths that we find in this text this morning that if you want God to do something in your life, these things have to be there. There are four things that I find in chapter number five in verses one through 11 that if God is going to do something special in your life, and by the way, he wants to. He wants to use you to do something wonderful, something blessed. But if that's going to happen, these four truths have to be there. Uh, notice, if you would, first of all, this morning, if God's going to do something special in our life, something significant, he's got to be in your boat. Jesus has to be in your boat. Now, obviously, this is elementary for us today because I would assume, as I'm standing here preaching to you, Bible college students, that every one of you has a testimony of the fact that, hey, there was a day when Jesus saved you and came to dwell inside of you. I hope you have a testimony. In order to get in this college, you have to give a testimony. Hey, I know Christ is my Savior. So it's somewhat elementary. But can I tell you that really Jesus being in your boat is more of him just now having control. So the fact is that with salvation, but there's also surrender some point in your life. That's the idea of Jesus controlling. Because I, when I think about that boat, I kind of think about that's Peter's life. That, that's his livelihood. This is where he makes his living. And so he allows Jesus into that boat. Jesus just kind of stepped in without invitation and says, okay, Peter, can I, can I use your boat? He had to surrender for that to happen. So I would say to you that I would assume, again, you're here in Bible college and many of you perhaps are, have come to that point. You, you say, hey, I've surrendered my life to do what God wants me to do. But maybe there's some setting here this morning. You say, well, I got my own plan. I know what I want. Miss Grace talked about her struggles a little bit with complete surrender. But I'm here to tell you that, hey, you'll never accomplish anything great until Jesus gets in the boat, until he surrenders. I just tell you, in my life, again, uh, you know, I was, I was in my teenage years and I kind of grown up in a ministry home. My dad left secular work to go to the work of the church as our church was growing. And, and honestly, I watched my parents struggle in ministry financially. And I thought to myself, that is not what I want. I had surrendered my life when I was just a kid. I, I sensed God called me to preach when I was in about third or fourth grade, but I thought, that's not what I want. I mean, now I'm a teenager, you know, I'm watching this struggle. I'm thinking, man, I, if there's something that's important to me right now, it's money, it's clothes, it is, you know, it, it is having some, some cash in my pocket, and I don't want to do that thing. And so I had my own plan. And in some respects, though, I wasn't outwardly rebelling, I was rebelling inwardly, and I was running from God. I was 16 years old, sitting in the auditorium at the Cleveland Baptist Church on a Thursday night of a missions conference. And I don't even know what Dr. Jack Baskin was preaching that night, but he was preaching. And I sensed the God of heaven stop everything else that was going on in my life in that service. And he spoke to me. And here's what he said, Kevin, if you ever want to have peace and you ever want to know the blessing of, of my blessing upon your life, You've got to give me what you've already given me. And out of that, when that service ended, I, as soon as this invitation started, I was down at the altar saying, God, I'm not much, but what, whatever I have, it is yours to control. And if you've not come to that point in your life tonight, this morning, I want to just encourage you to say, hey, in this service this morning, it's really not about what I desire for my life, but it is, Lord, whatever it is that you want, I want you to direct my boat. 
I want you to lead and direct my, my path. Help me, Lord, to find that, that path. I'll follow you. Again, we, we get so complicated. We want out to be out there. We've already got our plan, uh, a 10-year plan. This is where I want to be in 10 years. Hey, just listen, listen, listen to somebody who's been there. Just worry about today. Just be where you're supposed to be today. Tomorrow will come, and then you could figure that out tomorrow. But just today, be where God wants you to be. I've noticed that God directs us if we'll just allow him every day to have control of our life. There's a second truth that I find here. Not only I find that if God's going to do something, he's got to be in your boat. But can I show you something else in verse number four? If you want Jesus to do something special in your life, you've got to get out into the deep water. You've got to get out where the water runs deep. So Jesus spoke to Peter after he's done. So, you know, it's okay, this is shoreline stuff. That's not too bad. I don't mind. I don't mean mind being close to the shore. That's, 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 that's easy. And when he's done speaking, he said, okay, Peter, I, I'm done preaching. Now here's what I want you to do. I'm going to do something in your life special. So in order for that to happen, you've got to get out there into the deep. You know, I found many Christians... They never get beyond the shoreline. They don't mind, you know, getting their feet a little wet. But don't ask them to do too much. Let's not get too far out there. Because sometimes, you know, things that God stirs in our heart about, they're a little bit scary. <laughs> they can be a little bit overwhelming. They seem like they're almost unreasonable. Really? Okay, uh, I don't mind singing in the choir if I have a voice, but I don't. But, but don't ask me to teach a Sunday school class. Don't, don't, don't ask me to give that much for missions. Don't, don't ask me to, to, to go to that place and do that kind of work. Don't, you know, I'm, I'm just simply saying we all have our, what we call the scary moments of our life. The deep water moments. And these aren't places where we put ourselves, but these are places where God takes us. Hold your place here and turn to Psalm 107 for just a moment. Psalm 107, would, I want you to look at this passage with me because it really reiterates what I'm trying to drive home to you this morning. Psalm 107, look at verse number 23. Psalm 107, verse 23 says, They that go down to the sea in ships that do business, here's the phrase, in great waters. Now notice the next statement right after that. These see the works of the Lord. Now time out for just a moment. I'm just, uh, we'll go back and read the rest of the passage. But you get the in, 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 indication here, the implication from the text, that if you want to see God do great things, you've got to be in deep water. It, it's hard to see God do great things when you're in shallow water. Because you're in control. But when you get in deep water, then you're out of control and you've got to trust him to do something. And so uh, we're, the imp goes on to say in the passage, and his wonders of the deep. For he commandeth and raises up the stormy wind, which lifted up the waves thereof. They mount up to the heavens, they go down again to the depths. Their soul is melted because of trouble. They reel to and fro and stagger like drunken men. And they're at their wit's end. <laughs> yeah, it's, this is out of control. I can't handle this. 
Then they cry unto the Lord in their trouble, and he bringeth them out of their distresses. He maketh this storm a calm, so that the waves thereof are still. Then are they glad, because they be quiet. So he bringeth them to their desired haven. Oh, that men would praise the Lord for his goodness and his wonderful works to the children of men. Again, I'm just simply saying, you'll never know that until you get in the deep water. Until that boat is rocking, until those waves are crashing over the side and you're out of control because you're where God wants you to be and it's unnerving. But you'll never see the great calming effect that God can bring until you're in the deep water. I make this statement, nominal Christianity never sees the extraordinary things of God. You, you'll never see the extraordinary things of God as long as you're going to live the shore life. As long as you're just dipping your toes in the water. No, no, you're never going to see the great things of God until you get out to the deep water. Get out there where it's a little unnerving, where it's a little uncomfortable, where it's out of your comfort zone. In verse number four, he not only gets him in deep water, but he says, okay, now here's what I want you to do. I want you to let down this net. Now, you have to understand from what Peter says to us in verse number five, he didn't want to do that. I, I get it, because what he said in verse number five is, hey, Lord, understand, last night we were out here. We fished all night. We, he, he uses the word toil. That means he worked. Now, I got to tell you, I'm not, I'm, I'm not into, I, I don't do hunting or fishing. I've never, that's never been my thing. The few times I've gone fishing, I've done so with a, a pole, a rod, and a reel. And I've, because I'm so short-sighted and, and, I, and my, my attention span's not very long, if I go out there and I throw that, water, that, in the, that hook in the water and a fish doesn't jump on it within two minutes, I'm done. So, you know, some of you, perhaps that's your sport. You, you love to go fishing and you can stand out there for hours. But even if, even if you go out for hours with a rod and reel, it's not work. Some people find that somewhat contonic, you know, it just kind of soothes them. To me, it drives me nuts. I, I, something's got to happen or, I, I, you know, I'm out of here. But, but, but I'm, I'm just simply saying it's not work. But for them, it was work because they didn't use a rod and reel. They use, they use these nets. They're weighted. So you get the picture, you know, they're out there in the water and they're throwing those nets out there and they're, they're waiting and they're drawing them in. There's nothing. OK, we got to do it again. And they did it again and said, hey, look, we did this all night. We got nothing. Now it's morning. We've already washed these nets. We've mended them. We're ready. We were ready to go home. And you stepped in my boat. And you want me to do what? You want me to throw that net out there again? Don't you know that this is not when people fish? And I'm telling you, sometimes God asks us to do things that seem to us unreasonable. It's not, it doesn't seem to make sense. But I'm telling you that if you want to see God do some great things in your life, when he prompts you, you've got to. I'm so grateful that I followed a man in ministry who was a deep water type of guy. My pastor, Dr. Roy Thompson, was a street kid, grew up in the Michigan area, then finally landed in Detroit. His dad was an alcoholic, and he and his mother had spent a lot of time in uh, rescue missions as a kid growing up. And he said, I hated alcohol. But he said, by the time I was 19 years old, he said, I was already an alcoholic. And he was somewhat living on the streets of Dayton, Ohio. And 
his sister, Dorothy, had moved up to Akron, Ohio, and she was attending the Akron Baptist Temple. Dr. Dallas Billington was her pastor. And she invited her brother, Roy Thompson, to come up to Akron to visit during the week of Easter. And that week, uh, an evangelist by the name of B.R. Lakin was there, and he was holding a revival. And Brother Thompson said, I walked in that church. He said, I was a dirty, smelly, 19-year-old alcoholic. He said, I was so unlovely. But I heard the gospel for the very first time, and he said, God saved my soul and changed my life. It wasn't long after he got his salvation, he surrendered to ministry, and through a series of events, he finally ended up in Bible college. And the whole time he was in Bible college, God had laid the city of Cleveland, Ohio, upon his heart. And he talked to his pastor, Dallas Billington, who was pastoring in Akron, Ohio, which is only about 35, 40 miles from Cleveland. He had built a great work in Akron. Uh, church at that point was probably running about 6,000 and just known across the country as a, a place that was churning, sending out preachers. And, and so he said, hey, 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 Dr. Billington, uh, Dr. Billington, hey, God wants me to go to Cleveland. He said, I don't think so. <laughs> I don't think God really wants you in Cleveland. He said, hey, look, there's other guys who go on there and they, they've not done very well. He said, I don't think that's a place for you. I'd like you to go to Youngstown, Ohio. There's a group of people there in Youngstown that are looking for a pastor. He said, I think you'd fit the bill. In fact, if you'll go to Youngstown, he said, I, I'll help you get a house and a car. And Brother Thompson said, but God wants me to go to Cleveland. And he resisted his own pastor. His pastor said, okay, I'll, I'll grant you, allowing you to go. But I, I, and I'll help you a little bit, but I wouldn't help, I'm not helping you as much as if you would go to Youngstown. He got to Cleveland, Ohio, didn't know too many people, didn't hardly know anybody, just started knocking doors. And one of the places that he ended up knocking on doors was the house my grandfather lived in. He didn't know this, but God was working the life of the Folger family before Roy Thompson ever got there, preparing them for a man who would knock on their door. In order for our church to get started, my grandfather had to move out of the house that he was living in because he was a tenant and Brother Thompson was going to rent this house, but he couldn't rent it without my grandfather moving out and consenting to move because that was the condition the landlord made. So when he knocked on the door and said, hey, I'm here to start a church, God had already prepared my grandfather's heart for this young man. And he said, yes, I'll move out. So he moved in. Our family started attending. My grandfather went the first Sunday. My parents went the second Sunday. I was just a, a baby, nine months old. Hmm. Everybody said he, he probably wouldn't make it. That was 1958. 1960, they built their first building on the property our church now occupies. It's a 400-seat auditorium. It was a Palm Sunday, and the, the building wasn't even complete. And they were, they were going to have the opportunity to have a, a, the first service in this building that, and that they had just opened up. That Sunday morning, on that Palm Sunday, 400 people showed up, and when he gave the invitation, 40 people got saved. By 1968, they were building a 1,500-seat auditorium. I'm just simply saying, sometimes what God lays upon our hearts seems unreasonable, maybe to us, maybe even to others, but I'm just simply saying, when you get into the deep water, you can watch God do something. And you'll never know that until you get into the deep water. I'm thinking about a guy who surrendered to ministry the same time I surrendered to ministry. His name was Jerry. Jerry was a year older than I was in high school, and we went to the same high school. 
And, but he was a year older, and Jerry surrendered to ministry. And Jerry was just one of those type of guys that, you know, was, to me, was seeming a, a little bit awkward, a little bit backward. And you go up to Jerry and say, Jerry, how you doing? Fine. What's going on in life? Nothing. I mean, he just was the type, type of guy that just, you couldn't get much out of him. I mean, he just wouldn't say much. And it just seems a little bit, a little bit timid, a little bit backward. We went off to Bible college, and uh, we landed there about the same time. Jerry stayed, stayed a year, and then I, I, we went into Bible college at the same time. And, and we were both in the mission program. And, and Jerry, when he was in college, Jerry had a heart to go to Africa. And I thought, well, that, that's, that's good. Jerry married a gal by the name of Nancy, and they went off to, to Illinois and worked their internship. And I'm back at the church, work on the staff, and now I've settled that I'm not going to the mission field. And the pastor said to me one day, hey, the mission conference come up. Guess who's coming? I said, who? He said, hey, Jerry's, Jerry Novak's coming. I said, Jerry Novak? Really? This is going to be interesting. Because I can't imagine Jerry getting up in front of people and saying much. Because he just didn't seem like he, you know, he, he could do that. But I have to tell you, when he came to the conference and he stepped behind that pulpit, there, something, something happened. I mean, you still, I said, hey, Jerry, how you doing? Fine. Guys going to Africa? Yes. I'm thinking, okay, this is going to be interesting. But he got in that pulpit and God started doing something. It was amazing. I got to tell you, Jerry has been in Africa over 40 years. Church after church has been planted. I'm just saying, hey, God sometimes does much more than we can think if we'll just get into the deep water with him. There's a third truth that I find here in this text. For God to do something special in your life, you've got to see him clearly. See that in verse number eight? The Bible says in verse number eight, when Simon Peter saw it, he fell down at Jesus' knees saying, depart from me for I'm a sinful man, O Lord. Now, now I want you to back up for just a moment and look at verse number five. There's a, a change here that's taken place. In verse number five, when Jesus said, launch out of the deep and let down your nets for the draft, Peter says in verse number five, uh, we've told the night master. You see that word master? He's acknowledging Jesus as being a teacher, a, a, someone that should be respected. And I have to tell you that if you do a study, you'll, you'll know that Peter's heard Jesus before. He's had some interaction. There, there, there's been this relationship, but, but now, you know, he's, he's respecting it. He's not getting it yet who Jesus is. But when he, the Lord says, throw out that net and, 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 and do what I say, and, and he does, and he encloses a great multitude of fishes, he knows, he knows, hey, what just happened here, it, it's not normal. This does not happen this time of day. Those fish do not run now. So for him to just tell me to let down a net and immediately close a great multitude of fishes, he's more than just a good teacher. Notice in verse number eight, he calls him Lord. He is acknowledging him as the sovereign, as the controller, as the God who should control his life. Like Peter, we've got to realize we're just sinful people and he's the Lord of our life. Moses in Exodus chapter 3, he would have never gone to Pharaoh until he saw him. When he saw that bush that was on fire and that wasn't consumed, hey, he knew that whoever was speaking here had great power. 
It was Isaiah that, that had that vision of the Lord in Isaiah chapter 6. He said, I saw the Lord high and lifted up. Let me ask you something. How big is your Jesus today? Do you see him as he really is? We want to bring him down to our level. We want to make him our buddy. I'm here to tell you, he's not your buddy. He's your Lord. Isn't it amazing that God will take the likes of us sinful human beings and do something special in our life? I've found in years of ministry that God loves to take the least likely. I still remember being in Bible college and honestly, I struggled. When I was a kid growing up, they, they didn't label kids. When I was a kid growing up, they didn't you know, tell, tell you that you're hyperactive, but I was. And they didn't, uh, I, I think I'm a little bit dyslexic and, and I've always struggled a little bit with speech and, you know, I'm stammering and stuttering some. And, and, I, and I have to tell you that when I was in Bible college, you know, I went to those Bible college trainings and those guys who stand up sometimes, Brother Getch, and they, they, were, the, they, they were the golden boys. They, they knew how to preach. And I'm great, grateful for people that had that gift because I, I didn't have it, but I, it was a struggle for me. I got through homiletics just barely. So when I, when I graduated, I thought to myself, I'm, I'm going back to Cleveland, Ohio. I'm, I'm thrilled that they're letting me come back, but I never thought of myself of ever being the pastor of that church. So I just have to tell you the story. I came back on staff, and the very first time I ever stood before our congregation and preached was a Sunday night, I think it was in 1978, June or July, Sunday night. The pastor said, I'm going to be gone, and I want you to preach. Well, I have to tell you, it, it was an honor, but I was overwhelmed so I spent that week studying, preparing. I was going to preach that Sunday night from John 14 about heaven. Man, I spent that week and I studied. Man, I had a ton of notes and I was, I was ready to go. My, my bags were packed and I was ready to unload it in the pulpit. And I got up that night and I got to tell you, it was a train wreck of a sermon. It lasted about seven minutes. And when I was done, I wanted to go home and I wanted to hang my head. And I thought, I am never going to preach again. You say, well, how bad was it? I'll tell you how bad it was. My sister, who came to work for me many years ago as an English teacher in our Christian school, she would teach speech. And they had recorded that years ago on a cassette tape. Some of you don't even know what that is. She would bring the young people into her speech class and she'd set them down and she said, now look, uh, I know many of you don't think you'll ever be a public speaker, but he said, I just want you to listen to something. So she put that cassette in and she pushed the button and out comes this rambling train wreck of a sermon. And of course, at that point, I'm now the pastor of the church and my voice is a little deeper and, and they're, they're, they're setting their eyes big as saucers and, they, and she says, you know who that is? And they're looking at like, you know, we have no clue. And she says, that's your pastor. And if he can learn how to speak, so can you. I'm just here to tell you that God can take the least likely. When you acknowledge him, he can do something special in your life. Final thing I want you to see this morning, we're finished. Would you notice in verse number 11, if Jesus is going to do something special in life, you've got to learn how to walk away from some things. Verse 11, and when they brought their ship to the land, they forsook all and followed him. God had plans for Peter, James, and John, but it didn't include a fishing boat anymore. That had been their livelihood. That had been their life. They had to learn how to walk away. 
For some of you, obviously, that's not an issue because you've already walked away from some things. You're here in college, you're preparing for ministry. But I'm not so foolish to think, as I'm standing here before you this morning, that there aren't some young people that perhaps have some weights and maybe some besetting sins in your life. It could be a social media account. It could be somebody at home, boyfriend, girlfriend, that they're not exactly where you are. But if God's going to do something special in your life, you may have to walk away from them. I'm just saying that, hey, there are things sometimes that we have to cast aside if we want God to do something special through our life. So, as you're thinking about your life, you're thinking about an Adam Dyan, Judson, uh, Hudson Taylor, uh, William Carey type of moment. Let me ask you, are you expecting great things from God? And then the next question is, you can expect it, but it's not going to happen unless you attempt it. Because I'm here to tell you there's a God in heaven who wants to do something special through your life. but he's got to be in your boat. You've got to be willing to get out of, into the deep water. You've got to see him. And you better be willing to walk away from something if you want God to do something special.